It's been called the slap heard around the world. At the 2022 Oscars, an exchange occurred between comedian Chris Rock and actor Will Smith. Chris Rock, working the crowd before announcing Best Documentary, made a mention of how he was looking forward to G.I. Jane 2 with Jada Pinkett Smith in reference to her shaved head. There were laughs from the crowd until Will Smith marched up on stage and slapped Chris Rock. The crowd nervously laughed, expecting it to be a bit, but then Will Smith shouts twice, quote, keep my wife's name out of your mouth, end quote. It's not a surprise that the exchange generated a lot of media attention and some good, but mostly exceedingly bad takes on social media. There was one take, however, that drew my attention. When Chris Rock hosted the 2016 Oscars, he joked about Jada Pinkett Smith. In the clip going around, Rock explained the decision by black actors to boycott the event that year because the Academy failed to nominate a single black actor for two years in a row. When he gets to Jada Pinkett Smith, he says, quote, Jada boycotting the Oscars is like me boycotting Rihanna's I wasn't invited, end quote. Okay, I know that last word I believed isn't technically an obscenity, but it's pretty gross. I just don't like saying it. In this episode, I'm not talking about masculinity or chivalry or whatever reaction Will Smith had. I'm most definitely not encouraging people to punch stand-up comedians. Rather, I want to know, how do we identify bullying and how do sociologists in particular study this phenomenon? To do this, we have to talk about bullying from the perspective of kids. But we also have to look at bullying among adults because, one, it most definitely happens, and two, children model their behavior after adults. In today's episode, sociology is going to ruin bullying. Before we begin, it's important that we define bullying, which, not surprisingly, is a difficult thing to do. Psychologist Dan Olweiss, considered a pioneer in research on the topic, defines bullying as, quote, when someone repeatedly and on purpose says or does mean or hurtful things to another person who has a hard time defending himself or herself, end quote. There's another component, however, that's important. The individual or group doing the bullying has a higher status or greater strength than the victim. This is the academic definition. But how do children define bullying? I asked my seven-year-old, who I consider an expert on being a kid. What do you think the word bully means? Bully means that you do, like, mean stuff, like call people nerds and stuff. Just once? Well, also twice and, like, all the time. But sometimes the bullies, like, change. They, like, turn kind. Ooh, sometimes they're nice to you? Sometimes. Of course, that's just one child's definition with a little bit of optimism thrown in. But it's actually not far off from what researchers have found while interviewing children on the topic. So now you're probably thinking, I understand why psychology would be interested in the topic, but how does sociology study bullying? Well, I asked a sociologist. I had a chance recently to sit down with Chris Donahue, associate professor of sociology at Montclair State University and editor of the upcoming book, the Sociology of Bullying, Power, Status, and Aggression Among Adolescents. When I think of studies on bullying, I think of personality characteristics of the bully or effects on the victim, such as depression, even suicide. Essentially, the psychology of bullying, right? But 
when you look at sociology of bullying, is it more about the function structures play in either creating or preventing bullying? Or basically, what is the sociology of bullying? Well, it's a great question. The Most of the research that's done on bullying does come from psychology and also education. And there's a lot of health research, too. In psychology, there is a greater emphasis on the individual characteristics of the the children, but not just the children, of course, the adults as well that are, are in bullying situations. So technically, the definition used in psychology is one that goes back to the 1970s from Daniel Veyes. It basically defines bullying as multiple acts of, of aggression that are carried out intentionally by one individual over another or one group over another in a situation where the individual who's the aggressor has more power. Now, there is no formal definition in sociology for what bullying is. And in fact, the interesting thing I found in my research is that sociologists have tended to avoid the term. So you'll find many classic works in sociology that deal with aggression among adolescents without ever using the term bullying. And there have been a couple of cases where, like, for example, C.J. Pascoe, who wrote uh, Juju a Fag, later described that work as sort of missing the term uh, bullying. It's one of many, though, where the term just has not been used. And we use we, we look at aggression more generalized in, in sociology, more typically. Yeah, and that's exactly the definition I lay out. And this repeated acts carried out by someone against a victim or set of victims where a power differential exists. So I like to think of in comedy, they call this punching down, right? It's where you're repeatedly picking on someone, whether there's a class difference, there's a um, some kind of difference, right? But researchers have found that this definition is slightly different than how kids interpret bullying to the point where children, when they're given this standard definition, they're less likely to describe being a victim. Can you talk a little about this disconnect about how children see bullying versus how academic researchers see it? Yes. In in both quantitative and qualitative studies with kids, you often find that kids don't identify with some of the key terms that are in the bullying definition in psychology. Uh, namely, they, they often don't relate as well to uh, what, what it means to, for the power differential to be present. And sometimes, you know, adults have the same issue in that we're often thinking about physical prowess. And oftentimes that's not the type of power that's triggering a bullying situation. Oftentimes it's power that comes from friends, from peer groups. It's, uh, it's quite different than the traditional views we have. I've actually done some focus group research with kids where they describe what bullying means to them. And sometimes they just say, and I've seen this in other work too, it's really mean. You know it when it's happening. It's unneeded. It's unnecessary. It's extra. And we actually have one chapter in the book by Bob Farris and John Farris where they actually engage with that idea that maybe we need a definition for bullying that doesn't have to have these tight parameters around a specific a power differential being there. Uh, maybe we can think of cruel behavior uh, as, a, as a form of bullying. I feel as sociologists, we have to define power, right? <laughs> um, because within sociology, there are many different definitions of power. And obviously, adults tend to think of power differently than children. You mentioned physical prowess. But do you think that children interpret power sometimes to be more physical than relational? 
like as sociologists, we think, like I mentioned earlier, we think of class differences, we think of ethnicity, and we think of the intersectionality and, and how that has a different effect on people. Whereas children, like you said, they just think it's mean. Well, this is another thing that comes out in the book as well. The There's some concern that adults, uh, by using our definitions for bullying, we grow increasingly out of touch with kids and kids know a lot better than we do who really has the power. Oftentimes we think we know, or, or we, we use a lot of stereotypes in schools in our anti-bullying programs and our efforts. Uh, kids often know the answers. And uh, are they just using physical prowess? I would argue no. And I think in many cases, they're not always willing to be forthcoming about the things they fear about their peers. And I think sometimes that's why, you know, we, we fall back on our default stereotypes that it's the, it's the most popular kids. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the strongest kids in the school. And oftentimes that's not the case. In fact, they're frequently victims of bullying too. And that's something else that's found in research. And there are a lot of things that defy the stereotypes that we have about bullying. Uh, there's also work that suggests that kids bully their friends quite often as part of, um, you know, trying to acquire status in schools. So it's not always dominant individual over a weaker individual. So much like psychology looks for the mechanisms behind bullying, the individual mechanisms, are there social structures at work here that are supporting bullying? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm very interested in the way that there are different forms of systemic bias in schools on categories that we don't always uh, talk about that can lead to power differentials in schools, uh, namely heteronormativity and cisnormativity. Those forms of bias in a school can lead those that don't fit the norm to be out of place and the complaints they have or the cries they have for help they often go unheard because they're not recognized within a system that doesn't support them as well as it does for those that fit the normal characteristics. So I would argue that that's structural, the different biases we have in schools. And also, anti-bullying programs have to conform to state laws, and oftentimes they may be overly punitive on some situations of aggression that really fit the bullying definition and not quite as punitive as, the, as they, they could be or should be on cases that are equally valid. And they can also create a, a situation of fear about reporting as well if they're using uh, what we call zero tolerance policies or uh, you know, very strict punishments that will make the victim fear that the, the bully will get into so much trouble that they will retaliate again. There's something, I, one of your reports, there's something in there about also social deviance. What kids are really, I know this because I have a seven-year-old, they're really good at spotting differences. And there is that aspect of groupthink. And when one kid stands out from the other, that tends to be a source of bullying, not always intentionally, but sometimes it is very intentional. So Obviously, because deviance is established by norms, is there any research into the norms that create this kind of behavior? Well, we teach kids to identify differences, don't we, in, in so many aspects of life. I mean, that's part of the educational process. It's part of socialization. So we, in some ways, I think we can't be surprised when they identify differences and they respond to them. And oftentimes, they're mimicking adult behavior. So you know, kids are not the only ones that see differences in people and act differently. But I think 
oftentimes you'll see that kids have a harder time or uh, a lack of awareness about the way that adults will will hide their impressions of other people or hide their opinions or if they they say something about another they might be um, might be a little bit more open about it than an adult would be uh, oftentimes I would bet if you find yourself in texting conversations, you might find yourself typing something and you look back and you say, um, you know, if a kid wrote that, you know, we probably would think of it as a situation of, of bullying. So I, I don't think it's uncommon for kids to identify differences. I do think we, we, we train it in them. And in some ways, bullying behaviors are a little bit like socialization. Sometimes they're socializing one another to conform to gender norms, um, to conform to other norms in the school about how uh, what's considered acceptable behavior in a school. Uh, This doesn't justify it by any means. But sometimes, you know, kids may think that things taught to them are appropriately taught to others, and they build a culture around that type of behavior. The thing I've learned about having a child is that they are brutally honest (laughs) about everything. And they don't hide it in their emotions either, like in in their facial expressions either. Sometimes you see the most genuine faces on them, right? And sometimes their reactions, which we we consider aggression, they're guttural reactions. There are things that uh, they do quickly because they haven't learned yet to to hold them back in, in, in certain situations. Moving on to... Adults, basically, uh, bullying, sadly, isn't restricted to adolescents. Some adults might describe interactions with a coworker or a boss as bullying, but we also tend to apply it at a much broader scale. For example, the actions of politicians such as Trump or Vladimir Putin are described as bullying in the mainstream media. I don't know if it's an attempt to shame the actions of whoever we're applying the name to or we're waiting for the adults to step in and do something, but we just talked about these definitions and Do you think that applying a label at a broader scale kind of muddies the waters a bit? I mean, really, we can apply many other labels to Putin, for example, that are far more accurate. At the beginning of the war with Ukraine, the media talked a lot about bullying. Now we're talking about genocide. So I don't know. When we use this term bullying, because we're not always using it correctly, are we making things much more difficult at, like, say, a micro level where we're applying legislation and policies to bullying? Basically, are we just creating this mess because we haven't properly defined the word? Well, this debate goes on in the book as well. There's a chapter written by, by Derber and Magras uh, based on their book called Bully Nation, where they make the argument that uh, this is a, social, a book in sociology, where they make your argument that we do this on such a broad scale, and there's so many ways that you could use the term bullying. So their book was written several years ago, but they point out uh, ways in which all presidents, not just um, our our most recent ones, uh, I won't mention any by name, but they do in the book, and they describe ways in which uh, the United States is a bully to other nations. Uh, They also look at ways in which we bully the environment, and we we bully animals, uh, which is an interesting aspect of the book. They, they argue that it's all part of America's form of militarized capitalism, that we train young people to be competitive and try, trying to get ahead and manipulating the environment to their advantage. And when they don't do that well, they fail. And that's sort of the, the culture they argue we have in America. Now, to answer your other question, are we inflating the term bullying with this? Randall Collins argues in the book that, yes, we are. We've created this term that, that's given us all the sense that bullying is such a bigger problem now than it was before, when the reality is really maybe that it hasn't changed at all. 
we might have created something of a moral panic around the term bullying when really we're, we're looking at things that have been happening for quite some time. And again, that doesn't uh, minimize the harms of it, but it puts things in perspective a bit. It's kind of like the term neoliberalism, where a lot of people use it, but they're not always using it correctly. <laughs> and so it becomes the standard argument of, well, neoliberalism, well, bullying. And it kind of loses its meaning because if we're applying it at such a broad scale and we're not using the correct definitions for some of these things, then what does it mean at the, the, the micro level? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I argue in the book that we may be making a mistake in sociology by avoiding the term or thinking that we have to meet a certain definition. The reality is for children and for adults, the term bullying is real. It means something to them. If nothing else, it means uh, something that's cruel and unnecessary, as I, I mentioned earlier, and they need an outlet to express that. They need to be able to describe when something is happening to them. So in one of the debates about the definition of the term in the book, one of the authors, Robert Farris, argues, you know, we, we're not going to develop a campaign against gossiping and scapegoating, but bullying is a different type of word. We know it when we see it. it it's painful. It's cruel. And it's, uh, it's worthy of our attention, not just in other fields, but in sociology, where we bring a, a particular perspective that's helpful to anti-bullying programs and to, and to workplaces as well. Well, great. Is there anything else you want to mention about the book? It's a culmination of a lot of work of, of bringing together a lot of perspectives on bullying in sociology that have not been, been brought together quite this way before. So there are a number of authors that study adolescent aggression and in the book, they sort of deal with some of their prior work and some new work in the language of bullying. And it's done in a, in a way that can inform policy as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. So now I'll pose the question. Was Chris Rock bullying Jada Pinkett? Even though I just spent 15 minutes talking about how we define bullying with an expert on the topic, I'm still not sure if this is the case where I'm applying the term too broadly. If Chris Rock is a bully, does that mean all insult comedy is considered bullying? I'm a little out of my depth. There are also plenty of different takes out there on this, like Bill Maher lashing out at critics for being quote, idiots when it comes to understanding how jokes work. Listen, I'm not a comedian, but as a regular source of dad jokes in my household, I know this much. If you have to explain the joke, it, it's not funny. Also, let's be honest, do you really want to hear more white guys talk about this? The Black Girl Nerds podcast has a great episode on the 2022 Oscars, and they address this very topic. So absolutely go listen to that episode. I'll put the link in the show notes. But in the meantime, the hosts, Ryan and Jamie, gave me permission to use this clip. So yeah, Chris Rock is presenting this award. So before we even get to like him presenting the award and what award he was even getting to, you know, Chris Rock is a comedian. And by the way, I kind of miss like the Chris Rock from like, um, if you think about when he did, like he did a documentary about hair. And yes, that kind of Chris Rock, like back in the day was, to me, was cool. This Chris Rock, I don't know what's happening to me. And I don't know, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, if you think of something. To me, this Chris Rock feels different. Like something doesn't feel quiet. It's like something feels different. And I'm like worried that he's going to like, similar to this incident, that he's going borderline too far sometimes. 
that he didn't used to do. Like he, to me, he used to have like, he used to be funny, but to me, he used to have a cap. Like there used to be a line. And I'm, I'm worried that he's getting too drawn into like, you know, the gossip or, you know, whatever's going to sell something because he had to know what he was doing. Because um, if you go even further back, before I like really break down this moment, um, 2016, I forgot when he was hosting, you remember, he kind of made a dig at um, Jada Pinkett Smith when she was boycotting. Cause you guys remember it wasn't, um, they didn't have barely any or no, probably no black nominees when he was hosting. So she took, he took a dig back at her at like 20 in 2016 about this. So I think in this was a, like a kind of a history going on between them that maybe nobody really paid attention to at the time because they're like, okay, he's a comedian. He's making a joke. You know, she's boycotting this. Everybody knows the news. She's boycotting the Oscars for a good reason, right? Not like it was a bad reason, but something is still going on with them, uh, uh, you know, apparently from this moment. Yeah, so here's my whole take on the situation. I mean, number one, there's no excuse and there's no reason that anyone should put their hands on another person, period. Right, Point yeah. Blank. Um, I get the fact that he was insulted, that he insulted his wife, and that that is a very sensitive thing um, for Will Smith, given Jada Pinkett's Smith's condition. Um, but you don't physically assault another person because that leads to consequences. I mean, lucky for Will Smith, Chris Rock chose not to press charges, but he is very well within his rights to do that. So that's number one. Now. I do empathize with Will Smith's outrage. I think that uh, Chris Rock was out of line by making another joke, another dig at Jada Pinkett Smith, given that this is a history. I didn't know that until someone had tweeted at me that, you know, that he had done this before during the Oscars. So apparently that this is a thing where he likes to use the Oscars as his uh, uh, stage to do digs over at Jada Pinkett Smith. Um, but I, I don't think that's cool. Again, that was just a slightly edited clip for length. Go listen to the full episode for more. I want to thank my guests Chris Donahue and Ryan and Jamie from the Black Girl Nerds podcast for letting me use the clip. Also, apologies to my listeners for the late episode this month. Spring break means no kids in school, which equals no work being done. Don't worry, though. I'm going to make it up to you next month with an incredibly ambitious episode. It's going to be fun. Promise. This episode was written, mixed, and edited by me, Matt Sedlar. You can find me on Twitter at at Matt Sedlar or the podcast at Sociology Ruins. The music you've been listening to is by Kamiku. Join me next month as Sociology Ruins something completely different.